Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's episode concerns, tangentially, one of the most famous writers in the American canon. Is that right, Ben? Yeah, tangentially, it does. Uh, I'm Noel, by the way. You're Noel. Um, it's a bit we do. We say each other's names. Uh, or our own names, or sometimes uh, it, it, it goes both ways. But the canon. I, where did this term come from, this this canon people speak of? Uh, I, I, it always has confused me. It's always has, has flummoxed me. Well, it's, you know, it, it refers to a general rule, law, or principle, right? That's the first meaning, but the second meaning is a collection or list of things that are accepted as genuine uh, or as legit. We usually hear about it with books, but as super producer Casey Pegram can tell us, there's a bit of a, a film canon too, right, Casey? Yeah, that's right. The uh, American critic Andrew Saris kind of uh, created his own canon of uh, filmmakers piggybacking off of the French uh, auteur theory. Casey on the case, indeed. Uh, but, you know, so what, the canon that, that you shoot stuff out of, that they took that name from the uh, the other canon? Like, uh, we're, we're, are they unrelated entirely? Um, help me out. That's interesting, yeah. Well, the etymology for canon with uh, C-A-N-O-N goes back to Greek, canon for rule now now as far as canon versus canon yeah i don't know what that one would be Uh, i think it's really just a just a homophone at the end of the day Mm -hmm. that's disappointing 
I've always liked to think of them being completely related, but that's how I usually feel about words that sound the same. Um, you know I'm an etymology junkie, uh, but this one I, I think is, is going to end up being a letdown. So I'm just going to suspend my disbelief and choose to believe that they're related. Um, but yeah, canonically speaking, uh, this author uh, that is part of today's story is definitely up there, uh, is, is one of the greats, one of the giants, and also an intensely problematic figure as a human person as great artists and writers often are. Yes, and that man is Ernest Hemingway. You may recognize him as the author of numerous books you were forced to read in high school, such as The Old Man in the Sea, uh, Farewell to Arms, The Sun Also Rises. I am and was for a long time a fan of the collected poetry of Ernest Hemingway, which is it's very different from his novels and his short stories, uh, but I'll always recall one of my favorite poems he wrote. If you have younger people listening with you in the audience, this might be time to fast forward a little bit. This is not this is PG-13-ish, maybe, but here's the poem. I know monks masturbate at night, and pet cats screw, and some girls bite, and yet what can I do to set things right? Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway, indeed. Uh, also, really quotable gentleman. Um, a lot of quotes um, involving uh, inebriation because he was also a famous drunk. Uh, really like, always do sober what you said you'd do drunk. That will teach you to keep your mouth shut. Uh, and uh, one along the lines of, I'm remembering this one off the top of my head, uh, is a man is not truly a man in, until he's drunk or something like that. Wow. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh-huh. Uh, today's episode occurs in the shadow of Ernest Hemingway because Ernest Hemingway, just like George Washington, is one of those semi-mythical figures and we always think about them at a remove as a single entity in the world or the universe. But like George Washington, Ernest Hemingway had siblings and today's story is about Ernest Hemingway's younger brother, Lester Hemingway, uh, who, who you may not have heard of before. His name is pretty cool, but it's spelled in a confusing way, right? Oh, I love this. Uh, and it actually, it's funny, I, I learned the pronunciation of this a long time ago because of a website, a UK music website, that's uh, called Lester Bangs, um, as, as in Lester Bangs, the famous uh, Rolling Stone writer, um, famously dramatized and almost famous. But it was spelled uh, like the name of the town in England, Lester which looks like it should be pronounced Leicester. Uh, that's L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R. And such is the spelling of Ernest Hemingway's baby brother, Lester, who is the subject of today's episode. Yep, that's true. So he is known historically for, for three, three things. First, he's known for being the younger and only brother of the novelist Ernest Hemingway. Check. Yep, and uh, he also looks a lot like him, so that's double... That's double shadowy, right? You know, so he's living in he's he's he feels like he's always coming in second. Check. Secondly, he one of his most well received books was a biography about his brother mm. that came out eight months after Ernest Hemingway passed away. Serious shadow living, this guy. Uh, double check. And uh, I don't know, you know, Noel. Should we go ahead and spoil it? The third thing he's very well known for, and this is by far my favorite. Should we maybe soft spoil it? Yeah, let's soft spoil it. Uh, this is a new thing we're trying out. Uh, it involves a raft, and it involves uh, declaring uh, sovereignty of one type or another, um, declaring one's own nation, mm -hmm. as it were. 
Which is a thing people do. Every nation that's around now, at some point, somebody just declared it a nation. So it's not as crazy as it sounds. Let's, I think that was a good soft spoil. Uh, let's, let's get to know Lester uh, a little more and find out what led him to this, this crazy ambitious scheme. He was uh, born in 1915, right? Yep. 16 years younger than his uh, super famous older brother, Ernest. Um, so they wouldn't have been buddies exactly growing up. I mean, you know, he, he would have probably been living in his shadow um, for, from, as long as early as he can remember with an older brother like that who I mean I you know I, I know a bit about the uh, history of Ernest Hemingway and his life he was always sort of a brash incorrigible youth you know and uh, prone to adventure uh, and misadventure right mm-hmm it's true and he definitely had wonderlust before Lester was even walking around on his little baby legs Ernest was away in Europe and no don't think that the Hemingway kids had it hard in terms of uh, material needs. They they actually grew up in a pretty fancy suburb of Chicago at the time, a place called Oak Park. When Ernest returns from the Great War in 1918, he's recovering from these grievous wounds that he's received. It's like a mortar a mortar shell incident, and I think he even caught a little little machine gun fire um, around northern Italy. Yeah. And when he came back, he was the town veteran. He was a hero in his neighborhood. At 19. At 19. Wild. And his little brother, Lester, absolutely adored him. You know, the the sun rose and set on uh, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest was a little more casual about this. Lester called Ernest the Baron, but Ernest had a nickname for Lester. Yeah, yeah. It was clear that the love was not uh, mutually exchanged there. Ernest called his little brother Lester de Pester and then um, eventually shortened it to the name of my favorite John Leguizamo movie, The Pest. And it makes sense because, you know, we do the math He's three years old when uh, his brother comes back at the age of 19, right? So, of course, he has this three-year-old following him around. Lester, at least creatively, followed in Ernest's footsteps. Uh, he wanted to travel the world. He wanted to write. He wanted to be that rugged Teddy Roosevelt-esque outdoorsman. Uh, and like like his older brother, he had a ton of different jobs and different gigs. Yeah, and he also wrote a few books to boot. Um, one of the, I guess, popular is is maybe not maybe a little bit strong because it's certainly not something that has uh, been included in in the uh, the aforementioned canon. But is a book called The Sound of the Trumpet, which was published in 1953. But he was a published author. And, you know, he wrote for men's magazines and, like you said, he was sort of a newspaper man. I mean, he really was sort of a jack-of-all-trades, much like his brother. So he very much took a lot of cues from the story and and legacy of his older brother, which, again, was something that would have been fully formed kind of by the time he came of age, right? Mm -hmm. And think about this, uh, just to get a taste of the zeitgeist at the time. A review of his uh, novel, The Sound of the Trumpet, 1953, in the New York Times declared the following. They said, Lester Hemingway was part of the first younger generation shaped by the writings of his brother, Ernest Hemingway. So they're 
they're not calling him an impersonator or an imitator, but they're saying he's very influenced by his brother. But can you imagine how that would feel like to get that review where you're just lumped in with all the other wannabe Ernest Hemingways? Like, no, damn it. He's my Ernest Hemingway. You know, I'm the first to be influenced by my brother Ernest Hemingway. You know what I mean? Not just one of a flock of uh, of impersonators. I, I I would I would think that would maybe have have stung a little bit. Mm-hmm. And why can't he be the first Lester Hemingway? You know, that's that's the question on the table. It makes you wonder how all those off-brand sodas feel if off-brand sodas have feelings when they see, like, the, the mainstream stuff. I mean, if, if Toy Story holds true, surely there's Soda Story, and they have a secret life outside yeah. of our, our, our waking hours. Yeah, I'm, now I'm just I'm, – I'm lost thinking of those – those soda, <laughs> the soda dynamics, right? So, like, is is fan like the orange sodas? Fanta, Slice, right? Those are two orange sodas. What's, they are. What's the other one? Sunkist. Sunkist. There's also Squirt. Squirt. Okay, Squirt feels like it's it's the Lester Hemingway. Yeah. Well, I don't know. To me, Squirt is almost the more risque of the orange sodas. That's uh, just me. The, okay. the, the the sound of that word and the way it feels um, it conjures imagery uh, in my personal despicable gutter mind, uh, but that's just me. How do you feel like LaCroix plays into this whole thing? Do you think LaCroix is even considered a soda? Do they even let LaCroix into the room? Uh, you know, LaCroix is kind of like, nobody nobody shoot me for saying this, but LaCroix is kind of like the Gwyneth Paltrow of sodas. You know what I mean? It says it's good, or the, sorry, the goop of sodas. Like, mm. it says it's good for you, and it's better than uh, drinking battery acid is better than drinking, you know, Dr. Pepper or something, but it's still, it's not amazing, you know? It still kind of fills the soda roll. Well, but it doesn't have any sugar in it, and it's refreshing and delicious. I thought the carbonation was still bad for your teeth. It, they they do that say true? that. They do say that. It can be bad for your bone density as well. That's oh, true. Okay. Uh, but I'm a carbonation junkie, so if I'm going to, that's, that's what I derive pleasure mm. from rather than the sugar. So we digress, though. True. Uh, the moral of this digression is drink what you want. Uh, and also, n- no, no offense to uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Look up Goop and tell me what you think about it. Uh, uh, that's her company. It's true that uh, Lester was, however, um, always referred to in addition to his brother. Whenever somebody mentioned him or his work, they also mentioned that he was Ernest Hemingway's brother. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a phenomenon you see often with siblings of luminaries in any field, you know? I mean, it's really, really hard to uh, set yourself apart when you have a sibling that's already kind of gotten a head start, first of all, and is already just mega famous and associated with kind of an entire movement, you know? Um, Really interesting example is uh, Billie Eilish, who's a singer um, my kid really likes. Her brother, who is older than she is, named Phineas, he does all the production work for her records and plays in her live band. He plays bass, right? He plays bass, he plays guitar, really really great, uh, really talented guy, uh, but it's going to be tough for him to be mentioned without his younger sister being mentioned in the same sentence. And and as the older brother, uh, that's got to be tough for him too. But, uh, you know, money can make those wounds go away, I imagine. (laughs) Right. And, you know, as an only child, I I think I and, and probably you don't have a very good comparison to how sibling relationships work in that regard. No, we just have to get jealous of our colleagues and peers. <laughs> is that what it is? Uh, so we're speculating a little bit when we guess about uh, how Lester 
interacted with the world and how he received or navigated this relationship with his sibling. But we do want to point out, again, his most famous, by far his most well-received work was a biography that was actually about his brother, and it was called My Brother, Ernest Hemingway. So he at least leaned into it, right? He kind of knew what hand he had been dealt. He knew, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a singular voice of a generation, so I might as well. And he obviously revered his brother. There's nothing indicating in his story that he was somehow bitter or disliked his brother. He, he was he's inspired by his brother and influenced his, by his brother. Um, and he wanted to honor his brother and apparently wrote quite a bang-up uh, biography about him. Mm-hmm. He was aware of the public perception because he was uh, in an interview with the Los Angeles Times. He said, it's a tough act to follow. And we can already see kind of the, the head start pattern that you mentioned earlier, Noel. Uh, we can see that very early on in Lester's life. He was writing for his high school newspaper, which is great. And shout out to anyone in high school working on your literary mag or your newspaper or your yearbook. But while he was doing that, his brother had already published Farewell to Arms, and it was already optioned uh, for film, and it was being made into a movie starring Gary Cooper. Massive star, Gary Cooper, at the time. And a huge head start for uh, for uh, Ernest Hemingway. Then, when Ernest uh, had a stint in Spain as a correspondent um, during the third siege of Madrid, he was getting... 500 bucks for 400 word um, news reports. Uh, and that was in today's dollars about seven grand, which is, is a big deal. Um, we had our boy Lester um, kind of kickstarting his early uh, newspaperman career as a junior reporter for the Chicago Daily News. Um, and again, Ernest was there living the uh, the high life. The ex- it wasn't the high life. I mean, exactly, though. He was, he was in, in harm's way on the front lines during the third siege of Madrid. And so for anyone interested in the math, $7,000, as we said, adjusted for inflation for a 400-word dispatch, works out to $17.50 per word. That's amazing. That's good work if you can get it. Lester also published a novel. We mentioned his his initial novel that was published in 1953, You know what happened the year before in 1952? The Old Man in the Sea came out. And uh, and the year after that, 1954, the Swedish Academy, when they were awarding Ernest Hemingway the Nobel Prize in Literature, cited The Old Man in the Sea. And Lester's over here like, hey, I love my brother, but I also have a novel. (laughs) I'm speculating on that part, but it is a tough act. It's a tough act to follow. Did you read The Old Man in the Sea, Ben? Oh, yeah, yeah, several times. Did you like it? I, I it's, it. it's a tough one for some folks. I know, like it's sort of like cons- like uh, it's considered this massive work, but it's also uh, all, quite often said to be a little dull. It's one long metaphor, mm. you know. And uh, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed um, I enjoyed the sort of abbreviated, blunt writing style of Hemingway, especially in comparison to longer, more elaborate writers. Like God, save me from. Uh, Henry James, the turn of the screw guy, Mm -hmm. that guy uh, engaged in something called phenomenology, which is this 
uh, experiential process of a, of a character interacting with the world, learning great truths, and the audience or the readership going along with them. Uh, Henry James also had an interesting story with his siblings, but that's a story for another day. I did like Old Man in the Sea, uh, and you said for some people it felt like a slog, right? Well, that, that's just a, a thing that people often say about that book. I mean, it sort of gets a bit of a bad rap for almost being um, overhyped, perhaps. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like uh, Catcher in the Rye. Which I I love Catcher in the Rye. I think that's an interesting story, and I like the internal monologue of the character or whatever. But um, I also read that at an age where maybe it uh, connected with my rebellious spirit. I need to give Old Man in the Sea another shot. Uh, I was one of the ones that found it a little sloggy, but that was when it was assigned to me as a as a student. So maybe as I, I've gotten a little older and hopefully wiser, maybe it'll resonate with me a little more. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, nothing kills a great piece of art more quickly than hype. you've got to think about it, right? Like if you go, if you go and just find a book in the wild and it's amazing, then you know that you have been amazed by it personally. But if everybody tells you to like it, often the contrarian in us will say, I don't see what all the fuss is about, you know? But be that as may, the Nobel Prize in literature is a huge deal. Everybody but Bob Dylan is historically very excited about this kind of thing. And Lester soldiers on (laughs) and here we get to our soft spoiler uh we'll just maybe just set this up with a quote uh from lester in the washington post in 1964 there's no law that says you can't start your own country okay (laughs) you know in the style of his brother very blunt and direct and to the point I can appreciate that about the man. Uh, And it's interesting, Ben. Um, You'll recall um, we actually did a previous episode on something called the U.S. Guano Islands Act of 1856, where you'll recall it was a precedent uh, allowing U.S. citizens to, quote, take possession on behalf of the U.S. government of any unoccupied island, rock, or key on which a deposit of guano was found. And um, you remember that kind of created a bit of a of a guano boom uh, and guano of course as you know is um, is poop uh, bird poop uh, in particular uh, this was would have been was it seagulls or what was the what was the offending pooper uh, let's see in our earlier episode when US farmers went mad for bird poop uh, I, I want to say seabirds of some sort. I kind of recall. It would have had to be if it was an island or a key right. or a rock. Right. I also think of guano as bats. Bats. Bat poop. Specifically. But, yeah. that's, but it was much more of a catch-all term uh, in those days. But yeah, so that was the precedent. And Hemingway um, decided to really take this and run with it. Or shall we say row with it? Paddle with it? Float with go. it? Yeah. Whatever you got. Um, he figured that he could apply this to um, a, a mobile island, rock, or key. Right. This is interesting. And listeners, you'll see why this is a little bit of a reach. The U.S. Guano Islands Act already is is an egregious geopolitical reach. Uh, check out that episode if you haven't heard it yet. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. 
So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running, but it it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Here's what he did. Lester took an 8 by 30 foot bamboo raft. Uh, he, (laughs) He anchored it to an old Ford engine block in 50 feet of water, about eight miles southwest of Jamaica. This was a shallow ocean bank, but technically it's in international waters. It's beyond the three-mile limit of Jamaica's uh, ocean possessions, right? And it's anomalous because once you're that far out, the seafloor is usually going to be hundreds or even a 1,000 feet deep. 
the country, the raft is the country, by the way. Got it. The raft is the country. It's called the Republic of New Atlantis. And he, on, on top of this raft, he has iron pipes, stones, bamboo, stainless steel is the structure. And he made this raft, this artificial island, this would-be country, using all of the funds from his biography, My Brother Ernest Hemingway. And he also, he said, you know, we're starting this country small, but we're going to expand it in the future. We'll build a bigger raft. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll stitch some rafts together, right? Uh, this is interesting to me. So, like, I mean, did he have some kind of dinghy that he would use to get to dry land? You know, I mean, what's the logistics <laughs> of this whole setup? Right. You would think he needs a, an away boat of some sort, That's right? right. That's right. So he got this set up. It's clearly not super sustainable, right? You need a source of fresh water and so on. But he had the money to play with. Um, if we look at the how successful his biography is, of his brother was, he made a ton of scratch. We don't have an exact figure, right. but um, he definitely, you know, that would have been a, uh, a, a, the equivalent of a best-selling, you know, New York Times bestseller, you know, back in those days for sure. Yeah, we know uh, Playboy magazine paid him twenty-five grand to serialize it, to publish it uh, in the magazine over subsequent issues. And that uh, works out to what a uh, hundred and sixty thousand dollars today. Yikes! That's well, no, not yikes. Wow, amazing. <laughs> That's great. Good for Lester. And honestly, what a bold move! What an odd and interesting thing to do. And and uh, have we talked about what his his aim was, Ben? Not yet. Uh, yeah, he had a very specific goal in mind, which was to start a marine research society that would uh, be funded with the money that he made from uh, selling stamps, New Atlantis stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to need a little bit of a little bit of help with this one, Ben. Stamps like shares, like what are we talking here? Yeah, for the uh, philatelist market, uh, the stamp collectors. So was it really that big of a deal back in those days that you could hope to make that kind of money enough to finance a whole? aquatic research institution just from selling postage stamps? That's I think that was more a visibility thing, if I'm being honest. Uh, the Marine Research Society is probably mostly my brother Ernest Hemingway money going into there. I, I just – I don't – how many stamps would you have to sell? It, it's strange because it seems more and more like a publicity stunt, right? The The further we get into this – But yeah, he was trying to make a go of it selling stamps. He also was on good terms with the closest acknowledged government, the Jamaican government. They actually really liked the dude. A spokesperson for the Jamaican embassy said in 1964, he said, you know, Lester is a decent, well-meaning soul and this project is – it's good, you know. It's also in international waters and – Historians argue that one of the reasons Jamaica was okay with this, with this new country popping up uh, to their southwest, was entirely because they felt like he was – he really was building this as a stunt for environmentalism. He wanted to protect marine wildlife and he also – weirdly enough, did you see this? He outlawed gambling in his new nation and Mm. that, that made Jamaica really happy. Interesting. So maybe it was maybe they were worried it would be like a gambling haven. Maybe there were gambling yeah. problems, or you know, I mean, we know gambling can be a really toxic situation, especially in uh, 
potentially poverty-stricken places that are kind of commodified by tourism and casinos sneaking in and uh, folks that grew up there and live there developing gambling problems. That actually happens in a lot of those uh, Native American casino situations Ooh. that can be a real real problem. So I could see how that could be the case. Uh, just speculating here. But here's the thing. He, again, used that a very obscure uh, at the time. By, because, again, this is from 1856, the U.S. Ooh. Guano Islands Act, um, allowing to take control of any island, rock, or key uh, on behalf of the U.S. government if it's unoccupied and contains guano deposits. So where where is the poop, Ben? Where's the guano deposits? So this is interesting because... Everyone who remembers the previous episode, you'll recall the language in the Guano Act is tricky. Something is – you can lay claim to something with guano on it and you can uh, then legally consider that land as, quote, appertaining to the United States. Ah, yes. That was a term that we had to kind of really unpack, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. So what's interesting there is that – if Lester claimed the whole island or the whole raft under the Guano Act, then it would not be its own country. It would be in this realm of quasi-belonging to the United States. Therefore, he couldn't make it his own country. So what he did was he divided the island in half. He claimed the quote-unquote unoccupied half of his island on behalf of the U.S. And he said, that's the Guano Act. We're just going to – I guess we're just going to let birds poop on this part of the raft. And boom, we've got Guano, and he said the other half right. is New Atlantis. Uh-huh. So, so really, half U.S., half its own country. Half bird toilet. Half bird toilet. But that's the thing, though. I mean, like, how did he attract? <laughs> how did he attract the the bird bombs? Like, I don't because like, it seems like the language of the law it really does require that that be the the what, what constitutes a deposit. I mean, we're getting silly here, but like, you know, if a bird poops on your raft, it's technically depositing guano onto right. your raft. So all it, to- all it takes is one errant, you know, mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't, he clearly wasn't in the guano business, right? The population of New Atlantis started at six. It was Lester, Doris, his, his spouse, their daughters, uh, Anne and Hillary, who were seven and three years old at the time respectively, a PR guy named Edward Moss and his assistant, Julia. So in February of 65, there's a vote in the Republic of New Atlantis. Uh, The seven voters make Lester the first president. They have another PR blitz now that, you know, the Republic has its first election and Kingston, Jamaica's papers cover it. Lester tells the paper that his new republic will be a peaceful power and not threaten its Caribbean neighbors. Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. Uh, They also did – I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by what are called micronations. And this is a micronation. Is Micronesia a micronation? No, no, no. What's the – where's the micro come from? Sorry, I'm getting back into silly semantic etymology that probably doesn't exist. But is, is Micronesia smaller than Indonesia? It's made up of smaller islands. Ah, yes. I got it. So the micro is a descriptive term. Yeah, 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 yeah. I believe so. Now, I am am an armchair etymologist. I'm very interested in it, but I am not an etymologist by trade. So it is quite possible that there is a homonym at play and that Micronesia actually translates to something that neither of us know. 
It could be, you know, the the shining scales of the pufferfish. Indeed. Micronations, though, to your point, Ben, don't have legal uh, recognition in terms of, you know, the UN or any kind of bodies that do stuff like that, right? Right. And the rule of nations is uh, – it's kind of a fake it till you make it approach. We see this even today with uh, different uh, different countries or regions that are jockeying for UN recognition. The way you become a nation is by having other nations say, hey, that's a nation. It's very ad hoc. I, I mean, I hate to say it that way. It feels arbitrary. There is a process. If you get enough nations together to say, hey, uh, Pegramania is indeed a real nation, then, then boom, you're in. It's also a phenomenon wherein people absolutely lose their minds over super producer Casey Pegram. He's a Pegramaniac. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this it, and so when you want a nation to appear legitimate, you start preemptively creating the trappings of legitimacy, even if you are not recognized by uh, the powers that be. So you want stuff like flags to satisfy the vexillologist. You want stuff like stamps, to your point, right? For the philologists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the uh, philatelists. Ah, dang it, that was close. It's a tricky word. I don't know why. That's another – there are so many beautiful, mostly useless words in English, like the people who collect matchbooks. Voluminist. Really? Yeah, it's a cool word, right? What was the flag one again? Uh, Vexillologist. Vexillologist. Yeah. Really learning a lot today about – what what would you call that? Enthusiasts? Yeah. Yeah, They're not really experts exactly, right? No, not really. Yeah? A vexillologist is just a flag enthusiast, not necessarily a a flag expert with some sort of pedigree, right? Yeah, or there's someone who just studies flags, Mm. you know? They're like, hey, are you a a vexillologist? And they're like, well, not by trade, but I'm interested. What, What kind of flags do you have? I don't know. Now in my head, there's a guy with a trench coat. Who's walking up to people on the street and he opens a trench coat and he just has a bunch of flags. But they would have to be those tiny flags. Yeah, they're tiny flags. Yeah. Which is still a flag, right? I mean, uh, you know, a flag is a flag is a flag. There's no size designation for what makes a, a flag, quote unquote, proper. Right? right, right. And although they're standard rectangular dimensions, not every country practices those dimensions. You know what? If all it takes is a flag, let's just get ridiculous history of flag. I'm moving for it. We should make the shipping container a sovereign nation. Yeah. Casey, are you in? Let's do it. Okay, right. good. Because we, we need an odd number of votes yes. or else we'll descend into chaos. Yeah. And gridlock. And Casey can be the the the, the king, the governor, uh, prime prime minister. Prime maybe? minister. I like okay. prime minister. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to set him up to be a dictator. Casey, are you cool with that? We just elected you. I, I rule at the uh, pleasure of the people. Oh, that's us. <laughs> that's great. I love your energy, man. So, so our nascent nation here at Ridiculous History aside, uh, New Atlantis does get a flag. Lester's spouse sews it. And then they also create a national currency. I love this name. Hoo-hoo. I can see why, Ben. Because uh, you have no scruples, my friend. The scruple. That's what it's called. The scruple. It's like a ruble. A scruple. Scruple is also like the thing. What is a scruple? It, like if you have no scruples, that means you are uh, amoral in some way, right? Yeah, a scruple is a 
reservation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, it's it's what stops you from doing something morally uh, morally sketchy or reprehensible. And he must have had that in mind because it's almost like saying this is – our currency is the very nature of goodness. If you have scruples, then that means you are a thoughtful person. If you have no scruples, then you are a bad person. So he's really drawing a line in the – Water? Uh, the band, in the, the raft? The, in the raft? It's such a writer joke because Lester later said, I believe the rich should have many scruples. Boom. Exactly. Love that. Here's my question, though, yeah. Ben. Did, did he have all this stuff set up before he went out on the raft? Did he ever leave the raft? What if he left it unoccupied? Could it have been, you know, uh, invaded? Uh, so many questions here. Uh, who designed the flag? Did he do it himself? Uh, it, it seems like it was uh, him and his wife. Designing the Exclusively. flag. Yeah. Okay. As to how much they had worked out in advance, uh, we can say that there is a draft of the new Atlantis Constitution. So they did write stuff down. It was typed on a manual typewriter, and it's more or less uh, an exact copy of the articles that form the main body of the U.S. Constitution, and they just sort of mad-libbed New Atlantis in wherever it would say United States. So, I mean, let's let's be real here. The whole thing was sort of a a protesty kind of symbolic act. You mm-hmm. know, there were, there was a lot of satire built in with the whole scruples, and you know, I don't think he was necessarily intent. I mean, you know, he says he was trying to raise money for uh, preservation and for this uh, research center. I think he was hoping that the stunt would catch enough uh, publicity that he would, you know, create a, a groundswell of support and you know revenue, and then he could actually, you know funnel some money into these causes that he believed in, right? Yeah. But the whole thing was a bit of a uh, satire, kind of a, a jokey thing. Yeah, it's like it's a merry prankster vibe. You I know what I mean? I love it. It's the mid-60s, too, so we're at, the, we're at the peak of this sort of performance. Do you think there would have been LSD on the stamps that he was distributing? Interesting question. You know, he probably could have sold some more uh, now that you mention it. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's, I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonneville. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one, and that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino, and I meant Monte Carlo. 
I miss it so. Uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos, and the last one, God bless it, I just I I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally, but it, it still was like a a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now. Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. It's funny, we should spend some time on the stamps because he printed stamps in five different denominations. And as you said, Noel, he told reporters that he was going to finance the International Marine Research Society with the, with the stamps, right? But... Fatal flaw. Fatal flaw because the... Universal Postal Union, which is based in uh, Switzerland, refused to recognize the stamps. They said, look, these stamps are not legit because the country of New Atlantis is also illegitimate. So they said, you know, to us, you're just some guy on a raft cutting paper into little squares. Well, that's totally what he was. And I mean, you know, my question is, you know, we you don't just print your own stamps in the same way that you don't just print your own money. Or or do you? I mean, you know, if you're a sovereign nation, you've got your own mints, you, you recognize your own currency, that makes it legitimate, is, is the fact that you're a sovereign nation. But what makes it legitimate internationally is that recognition, you know, right. from outside of your bounds. In this case, the very, very small bounds um of this raft so yeah I, I that's interesting i guess you you know we do print our own stamps the post office doesn't print stamps for you does it how are stamps produced i believe it i want to say it's the bureau of engraving and printing right you're absolutely right ben that's totally true so that i mean that, that <laughs> sort of 
pulled some of that legitimacy uh, in the first place, right? I mean, he's literally saying, I printed my own stamps and my own denomination. Um, there was no recognition of that. Uh, you, you would need the recognition, I think, before you could print the stamps and, and expect them to be considered legitimate, right? Right. So he sort of put the wrath before the seahorse there we go. in this situation, I think. They got close to recognition, though, and they knew how to play the game. So they one of their stamps that came out in 1964 honored President Lyndon Johnson, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson. Big the, Jumbo. Yeah, the guy who nicknamed his genitalia Jumbo. And they called him the protector of the free world in this stamp. They got a note from the White House that was a very nice thank you note, but they did not get diplomatic recognition. Supposedly, the thank you note addresses Lester as the acting president of New Atlantis. So this is the closest he's come to being recognized as the as the leader of this developing nation. But still, it wasn't it wasn't quite there. The U.S. Office of the Geographer in 1988, one of the spokespeople said, "This thank you note from the White House." was, quote, the closest a dreamer has come to official recognition. Yeah, and, you know, Lester really was kind of a dreamer. And, and if you ask me, did set himself apart from his older brother. I mean, this is some pretty bold stuff that he was doing. And he, he's quoted as saying he really only did it to have a little fun, like we said, that merry prankster vibe, and to make some dough. Um, didn't really make any dough. Definitely seemed to have some fun and and left a pretty interesting legacy that actually did uh, did did endure a bit. Though his tiny raft nation uh, was eventually destroyed by a storm, I and mean, we could have seen that coming. It was um, you know held together by twine and and scraps and lead pipe and bamboo and all of that stuff. So, but it did stick around for a few years, um, but. It actually uh, caught the attention of one Mary M. Hearth, who was a librarian for the University of Texas Humanities Research Center. Um, And in October of 1965, um, she and the center created an exhibition uh, to memorialize Lester's mad experiment. That's right. The exhibit includes a letter from 1965 from Lester to Hearth. He addresses her as Lady Mary. So you can travel today to the spot where the nation of New Atlantis once existed, but you will not see the actual raft. What happened to Lester? It's a bit of a tragic tale uh, for the last five years of his life, he was primarily focused on the Bimini Out Island News. I'm pronouncing that carefully because for years we've been saying Bimini, like bikini, but it's Bimini, mm-hmm. right? Like Gemini. Yeah, 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 like Gemini. So this this uh, Bimini Out Island News was a, a little monthly newsletter on fishing. So he returns to writing primarily about fishing He also gets diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and he suffers through multiple operations, like five over the course of only six months. He may end up losing his legs, and tragically, Lester Hemingway decides to end his life in 1982 at the age of 67. But 
he did leave behind a very interesting legacy um, that generated uh, a lot of, of you know, publicity um, and created, uh, well, I don't know if you could argue that this maybe isn't an amazing uh, result, but it did create a lot of right-wing interest in the idea of, uh, you know, setting up one's own nation, artificial nation island. Um, and Peter Thiel uh, of PayPal um, had this uh, used, used this concept for his Sea Standing Institute concept. The idea of uh, reimagining civilization with floating cities. That is uh, directly from the seastanding.org website um, that reads The Seastanding Institute is a nonprofit think tank promoting the creation of floating ocean cities as a revolutionary solution to some of the world's most pressing problems rising sea levels, overpopulation, poor governance, and more. Uh, I could get behind that. I I think that's a uh, I, I I think it's at the very least inspired by New Atlantis and of course shout out to one of the most famous micronations the Principality of Sealand which is have you heard of this one no sir it's pretty much the same uh, it's a very similar thing a former British Army major a guy named Paddy Bates occupies this 120 by 50 foot platform it's just it's literally an anti aircraft gun platform he takes over it. And declares it his own nation, and no one really stresses out about it. Sealand's a great story. Uh, Stuff You Should Know has a good episode on it as well, so check them out. Lester, overall, seems to be a pretty swell guy. He doesn't resent his brother's talent. He seems to love him, and he seems like he's having fun You know, uh, weirdly enough, the Connecticut Review, going back to our statements about masculinity, the Connecticut Review said the following about Lester. They say he's articulate, vibrant, definitely his own man, and he had managed somehow to accommodate himself manfully to living in earnest shadow. How does one accommodate oneself manfully? And in earnest. And in earnest. There we go. So, I like that. Manfully. Manfully. We're going to do things manfully now? I guess so. Uh, one note before we go. It's just an important thing. Um, we did mention that Lester took his own life. And as you know, uh, Ernest Hemingway also took his own life. Uh, depression is real. And sometimes these things do run in families. But if you or anyone you know has uh, ha- ever ever feels like you're getting in these dire straits or you're having a tough time, there are people you can reach out to. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Or reach out to someone close to you. Never feel like you're burdening anybody. I think that's the biggest barrier to people just having conversations that could really uh, make a world of difference is people don't want to impose and and you're never imposing. I can say that um, speaking as someone who's never maybe even met you out there. I would be more than happy to talk uh, to anyone who's ever feeling any of these uh, these feelings, as I know Ben would as well. Um, so please reach out uh, to someone close to you or to a stranger. Um, just reach out to somebody. Absolutely. And well said. Thank you, Noel. Speaking of reaching out, you can find us all over the internet. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Meet one of our favorite parts of the show, your fellow listeners, on our Facebook page, 
ridiculous historians. All you got to do is name drop myself, Ben Bowen, super producer Casey Pegram, any of the myriad names that we drop in the credits, or, you know, just a ref to one of the episodes or just something pithy uh, that lets us know that you're a human person with actual interests in joining the group and not some sort of Russian bot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a Russian bot and you're in the audience and you, your pun game is strong, I, I might still let it go in. Bring it on. And you can follow us as individuals. I am at Ben Bullen on Instagram. I am at Ben Bullen HSW on Twitter. You can find me exclusively on Instagram at How Now Noel Brown. Big thanks to super producer Casey Pegram. As always, Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Our research associate uh, slash mastermind, Gabe. Uh, thanks also to Eve's Jeffcoat. And you know what? Thanks to... Uh, Thanks to Lester Hemingway. I kind of want to build a nation now. kind of do, too, and I want to find out more about this guy. He sounds like the kind of guy you'd want to um, just have a beer with and maybe go rafting. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.